0: I think I've seen two mistakes that are sort of on the opposite ends of the spectrum I've seen junior faculty member who were not um, as open to um, trying different things until there was a fit or until they found something that grabbed them that they wanted to uh, devote their career to and then I think I've seen junior faculty members who did the opposite they said yes to everything, but continued to do everything and weren't very selective.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Breathe Easy podcast, hosted by myself, Dominic Pepper. In this podcast, we ask an expert clinician, teacher, or researcher to share their insights about career opportunities in the fields of critical care, pulmonary medicine, or sleep medicine. And for today, we go to Connecticut to discuss how to have a rewarding academic
0: career. And I always thought I had this higher calling, as it were, to be a scientist, you know, to discover things. And um, probably should have been listening to a, maybe a voice, uh, you know, a little voice that was telling me maybe I didn't have the temperament to be a basic scientist, even though I had enjoyed it during all those years.
1: So, before we get started, would you like to introduce yourself?
0: Sure. I'm uh, Mark Matersky. I'm the uh, newly minted Director of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine.
1: Great. Uh, would you like to tell me a story um, about how you became uh, the Director of Pulmonary Critical Care um, at the University of Connecticut?
0: Um, I got old, <laughs> and therefore. <laughs> um, I've been here ever since my start of my career I trained at the University of California San Diego but my wife comes from a large close-knit family so I always knew that we would be heading back to New England and uh, there was a great job available for me here at UConn uh, just out of fellowship and um, I've been happy here and uh, it was a great place to raise my kids so even though I've had inquiries over the years I've never really seriously looked at uh, at any other jobs uh, until uh, a few years ago I looked at one job but um, it wasn't enough to coax me away so uh, I stayed here and gradually became the most senior person in the division um, and uh, I guess uh, they decided uh, instead of doing a national search when our prior division had retired instead of doing a national search I guess they figured they that definitely wanted less, your uh, experience yeah I guess so <laughs> um, you know, it's cheaper. It's cheaper to hire someone from within than to do a national search. I get <laughs> These you. days, money money means a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I want I want to go
1: back to when you were a resident, um, and wonder if you could just share with us what you, were your experiences as a resident, and what those experiences uh, and how those experiences informed your decision to decide to pursue pulmonary medicine and critical care.
0: Sure, uh, I did my residency at Boston City Hospital. It, it was a place as you can imagine where uh, there were not a lot of uh, resources and attendings didn't uh, didn't really play a huge role in what we did hour to hour we saw them on a daily basis but we pretty much ran the show Um, and um, uh, I had really good experience in the ICU I, I liked the energy of the ICU the rapid pace I also had um, a very dynamic ICU attending when I was an intern, uh, Hap Farber, who's still at BU. Um, and so it was it was critical care that first attracted me to the field, uh, and then uh, I got more experience with pulmonary also, and found that I liked liked pulmonary uh, for the reasons that we all hear when we interview when we interview fellow candidates. It's multi-system. It's not one organ like the heart uh, with only to disease processes that are relevant. Um, I also like the fact that, uh, that although it wasn't surgery per se that there were procedures involved also because I liked doing procedures. So it was a really good fit for my, for my temperament um, and what I enjoyed doing in the hospital.
1: I get you, and you mentioned the influence of your mentor as uh, when you were a resident. Would you be able to share uh, some of the things that he did that uh, really made you say, you know, I want to become a critical care physician?
0: Um, I don't know if it was anything he did so much as the fact that he was he was excited and happy to be in the ICU. You know, he just liked being there. Uh, he liked teaching. He liked taking care of the critically ill patients. Uh, and his enthusiasm for it um, was infectious. I get you.
1: And, and then a lot of um, critical care physicians find that they're attracted to critical care because of the high energy, the pace, but they end up switching to pulmonary medicine, um, as you say you did. Um, what specifically motivated you to spend more time in palmary medicine?
0: Well, I was doing both, and, and I still do both, um, although I do less Critical care now and more pulmonary um, i I find that the uh, that the outpatient office based practice is the most rewarding. I think part of that is because of the interaction that I have with the patients in the outpatient office they're not acutely ill so they 're not miserable. Uh, they often are smile, we can often share jokes, um, you know we can talk about their grandkids and my kids and um it's, it's just a more pleasant environment in many ways. I'm also fortunate in that I have a very um, varied practice. I see a lot of referrals of patients with unusual diseases. So it's not just all COPD and asthma. So uh, I find the disease processes interesting. But I think it's really the interaction. Even in the, on the consult service, which I still do, a fair amount. You know, patients are sick and, and the interactions just aren't as pleasant. So it's, you know, maybe it's uh, somewhat um, uh, selfish on my part uh, in a way, in that uh, I, I just find it more enjoyable. So, in 1999, you
1: were elected the chair of the nominating committee for microbiology, TB, and primary infections assembly. Um, can you share with us uh, what resources were available to you at ATS and how you were able to utilize them to their full advantage?
0: Sure. Um, so, I was fairly junior then, so I, I was nominated to that position by by one of my uh, prior mentors uh, uh, in San Diego, and and it was it's a very I would say minor role. Uh, so it was nice to have that uh, have that on my CV. But I think there were much more important things that ATS offered me um, as a junior as a junior academic faculty member. Um, the the one obvious one that almost goes without saying is is the uh, the journal, which obviously provided uh, much much opportunity for me to Im- improve my knowledge base. Um, but networking at the national meeting was quite important for me as, as someone who wanted to um, establish myself as, as a, uh, a uh, clinical researcher in the area of pulmonary infections. Um, uh, the best way of doing that for me, and I think for most people who are trying to get established, is becoming active in, in their assembly. So the assembly is a much smaller venue the whole meeting and it enables you to get known um, as someone who's interested in that area to establish relationships uh, collaboration um, and and obviously to um, to be nominated or selected for roles that um, provide you even more visibility look good on your CV and help you get promoted because being being uh, nationally known and nationally contributing to your professional society is, is something that every uh, promotions committee looks at.
1: I get you. And then in 1994 to 2013, you were the, the director of the Palm Critic Care Fellowship Program, and I want to ask you, um, how the, what are the common mistakes that you've observed that fellows make or junior faculty make when developing their academic career, and how would you advise them to
0: avoid those mistakes? Uh, good question Um, I think I've seen two mistakes that are sort of on the opposite ends of the spectrum I've seen junior faculty member who were not um, as open to um, trying different things until there was a fit or until they found something that grabbed them that they wanted to uh, devote their career to so people who would look at potential opportunities and say, ah, oh, that's not necessarily what I wanna do, and therefore lose opportunities. Um, I, I joke that um, that when I was a junior faculty member, for any opportunity, I would I would sort of raise my hand like I was in the classroom and go, ooh, 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 call on me, uh, like a, a character from a show from the 80s, uh, Horshack, in Welcome Back, Cotter, for anyone old enough to have uh, seen that show. but um, basically any potential opportunity I would look at and and see if it was something that ultimately would be of interest to me and would help me advance my career. And, and obviously also would it be good for patients or, or my institution. But um, so I had an open mind. And some of those were things that ultimately did not give value and, and I stopped doing them or, or ultimately didn't take those opportunities, but I looked at everything. And then I think I've seen junior faculty members who did the opposite. They said yes to everything but continued to do everything and weren't very selective. And they therefore really never developed a specific area of expertise, a specific area where they could become known. Um, Because you can't be publishing on 10 different entities and expect to become known uh, for any one of them or all 10 of them. You really have to ultimately find a niche where you can make a difference and get noticed.
1: I get you. And then, do you think it's possible to actually have an interesting and rewarding academic career?
0: Well, yes. Otherwise, I'd be in private practice. Um, And I think it's important to state that you can do that without getting grants, without writing grants, without being a basic scientist. Maybe you could share done. your story. Oh, yeah! If if you could share your story about how you were able to achieve that, sure. And part of it was being receptive, like I said previously, to to opportunities. Um, I had done basic science research um, through my summers, uh, all four summers in college. Uh, my senior year in college, I, I did a, a, a research project for the whole year to get honors. Um, I did some research during medical school. And I always thought I had this higher calling, as it were, to be a scientist, you know, to discover things and um, be a basic scientist. And then in fellowship, I went into the lab during my research block and um, probably should have been listening to a, maybe a voice, uh, you know, a little voice that was telling me maybe I didn't have the temperament to be a basic scientist, even though I had enjoyed it during all those years. Um, I ran into a snag very early into one of my um, into my research block, and you know for a few weeks I just couldn't make progress and I was so impatient that that was about as long as i could could devote to solving a what was a very should have been a very trivial problem but it it I'm glad I ran into it because I might have tried to pursue a basic science career longer if I had not, but I finally listened to that voice in the back of my head that was telling me I just wasn't cut out ultimately to be a basic scientist I didn't have the temperament for it even though I probably had the skills that that could have maybe made me successful I wouldn't have enjoyed it Um, so that was somewhat of a a setback you know if you spend many many years thinking that you you know you're sort of destined for something uh, to realize that it may not be the best thing for you and so then I uh, during third year of fellowship I just wrote as many papers as I could because um, I knew I was headed back to Connecticut um, or to New England. I wasn't sure where I would end up. I wasn't sure if where I would end up would have a, a very strong uh, research um, infrastructure to, to, um, uh, to mentor me. So I, I wrote as many papers as I could, did as much research as I could. But clinical projects um, to teach me how to approach a research problem and collect the data analyze the data and write it up. So I, I had great mentors and, and I published three or four papers um, based upon research uh, that I had done as a fellow. And then when I became a faculty member, um, I did the same thing. I, I said yes to every opportunity um, initially, and ultimately one of them ended up providing an opportunity to have access to data Um, national data that allowed me to write papers on on pneumonia and outcomes and quality and I still have that gig uh, as a small part of what I do Uh, the university hires me out to to our uh, our um, state quality improvement organization that that has uh, national projects for quality improvement and um, between that and through ATS uh, um, forging connections with other people who are interested in pulmonary infections. I've managed to, to be able to um, publish a lot of papers and, and uh, develop some area of expertise in pulmonary infections that ultimately landed me as the co-chair of the pap guidelines. So um, that's with um, uh, writing one grant proposal in my whole career that was not funded.
1: Wow to collaborate with a lot of industries though so, you've collaborated with Gilead and Genentech and Formaxis. Um, how would you advise a fellow or junior faculty member to develop these research collaborations and networks and, and get things going if they can't get grant
0: funding I would say the industry for the most part the industry um, studies that I've done have been not because they're great academic opportunities Um, I run a bronchiectasis program and all the studies that you refer to are for investigational uh, products for bronchiectasis and I do those studies to provide uh, potential treatments for my patients to advance the the clinical care of bronchiectasis Um, secondly it does provide a little bit of extra money to to pay for um, you know academic meetings journals things like that but the main reason I do them is 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 to have uh, opportunity for my patients to have um, access to potentially uh, useful therapies uh, the the benefit in terms of an academic career of doing these types of industry studies is that you do get invited to investigators meetings so you're you're getting to network with other people with um, <clears throat> excuse me who are experts in that clinical area um, so you you know you forge relationships that way, and and it may may eventually lead to um, something that's a little more interesting than just participating in a clinical trial, which is being invited to help design the clinical trials, and uh, I find that more interesting. I'm doing a little of that now, but uh, industry has really not been a, a large part of of my work. And
1: when you did collaborate with them, was it just a case of picking up the phone and calling them or just meeting them at the meetings that you went to or You're
0: talking about the industry collaboration? That's right. Um once you're known for a clinical area, you you'll get emails saying, you know, we're starting a phase three study in X. Do you want to participate? And these are blast emails that go out to hundreds of people. So if you if you're interested then then it's pretty easy to get involved in a clinical trial. Um is, are there other ways, other times, more less commonly, uh, you know, a colleague will recommend, hey, Matursky does bronchiectasis too, do you, do you want to include, you know, do you want to see if he wants to participate in the clinical trial? But it's not really calling up the uh, company and saying, hey, I want to work with you. It's, it's uh, usually the other way around when they have a product that they're going to study.
1: I get you. And then you mentioned you're the, the co-chair of the ATS uh,
0: IDSA guideline
1: panel for HAP and VAP. Um, hospital-acquired and ventilator associated pneumonia. Can you tell us what you think the field of uh, HAP and VAP will look like in the next uh,
0: 10 to 15 years? Uh, in terms of diagnosis, I think we're going to be using molecular methods um, m- much more to our advantage uh, so that treatment is not going to be initially empiric, um, both to diagnose the uh, ideologic agent and the resistance pattern. I think resistance patterns can be linked to specific um, uh, genetic uh, markers, and that we're gonna be able to find them quickly and uh, uh, create uh, more appropriate, accurate uh, initial antibiotic regimens. So I think that's diagnosis, and obviously that leads to how treatment will be different. Uh, I wish I could be confident that we're gonna have lots of new antibiotics. Um, I, I think the the um, environment will have to change for that to happen. Uh, as probably everyone listening knows, there, there are not a lot of new antibiotics that are hitting the market because of a lot of uh, barriers to them. But um, I, I think the use of molecular methods is really gonna change how we approach uh, respiratory infections.
1: And if you had to do it all again um, as a fellow, but starting now in 2017, um, how would you go about uh, doing it? Or or would you change anything in terms of uh, your career path or uh, how you went about uh, developing your career? That's a tough question. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've I've had a really fun career. Um, Yeah. Maybe it's because I never have to write grants. Um, but, but, you know, I, I've been more successful than I expected, uh, you know, in some of the metrics that, that I think people would agree with. You know, I've, I've been able to write a lot of papers. Um, you know, I, I got onto the guideline panel. Um, and I've had to do it without really doing things that, that I don't enjoy doing. Um, so I'm not sure that I would change anything. Um, some of it's luck, clearly. I, I've had people who've given me opportunities, but but um, uh, I think if you if you go out of your way to accept opportunities and to make connections, um, that that luck luck is created often so that I think a lot of people can can do what I did and have a rewarding and fun career.
1: A big thank you to Dr. Mark Matersky for joining me. And thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.